Hey friends, Caroline here. The conversation you're about to hear is not an easy one to have or to listen to, but Anne's courage to share her experience and her truth are especially important right now as we take a much needed look at mental health, learning how to speak about our own needs and learning how to support each other. Whatever your own personal truth, our hope is that this discussion will remind you that no matter how perfect and pretty an Instagram feed may look, we're all fighting our own battles one day at a time, may we truly unravel the aloneness that social media can amplify and remember that we are all in this together. Please consider this a little trigger warning if you are sensitive to discussions of mental health and things to do with eating disorders. At the end of the day, all we have is our personal responsibility. Owning both the successes we've created and the messes we've made and learning from those messes, taking responsibility from them, not taking all the responsibility, like don't take on what's not yours, but be honest about what is and move forward with that. You're listening to Out of Line with Caroline Lee, exploring offline realities with online personalities. Ann Sage is an author, stylist, and OG blogger under the alias City Sage. She went to Stanford, worked as a consumer strategist in Manhattan, co-founded an online magazine in San Francisco, and wrote her first book, Sage Living in LA. Ann and her husband, Ivan, live in LA with their two cats and two dogs. Ann also happens to be my business partner at our studio space, Light Lab, and is also one of my dearest friends. She came over to my place where we recorded our chat on eating disorders, anxiety, mental health, and so much more. When we moved to the South, one of the things that my parents were most shocked by was this, we sang a song in kindergarten that was, um, a pizza hut, a pizza hut, Kentucky fried chicken and a pizza hut. They were appalled. Why? Because we had never encountered that kind of like we they grew up in Reno, which is like, yes, gambling, but also healthful mountain living. And then moving to the south where it was all fast food and and, you know, obesity epidemic kind of <laughs> starting to roll. Yeah. Um, it was just absolute culture shock for them. So that and then that they were we were singing this song and I had come from like this quaint little uh, nursery school environment where like I was, I was learning that the number eight was also the infinity symbol. Right. And then then (laughs) in a kindergarten class where we're singing fast food songs. Oh, and there was this thing called sitter size that we did every morning after the national anthem. What is that? Um, that what it sounds like in your chair doing exercises and it was a recording that they would play over the PA system so the whole school would be doing it in their classrooms at the same time and it was like milking a cow and uh, doing chicken wings with your arms and that was the exercise for the school every day you didn't have like PE well we had PE but it was you know once or twice a week oh my gosh that is so funny um it's like did you ever watch sit and be fit it's like for <sighs> it's like the really sweet older it's like geriatric <laughs> no, exercise but I love that name I, so much. I, it used to be on at my house all the time I think it was on right before Mr. Rogers okay. on like PBS or something <laughs> 
And so it was like this sweet older woman and she was so gentle and she always had um, a, like a washcloth, like without, that was the, the, you know, instead of using like a dumbbell for oh, your right, weight, right. you would, you just used a washcloth like and it was creating like, your own resistance with a washcloth. <laughs> That's like, I can remember when I first started reading shape magazine, when I was like 11 years old, um, they would do things like grab a couple paper plates and put them on the floor and like slide across the floor. <laughs> and in 1993, this was the, the height of fitness advice. <laughs> Oh my gosh paper plates paper plates like well but if you think about it it makes complete sense you could do a push-up and put your hands on the paper plates and then like slide your hands out they they now sell they figured out how to monetize this and you can buy like thin glidey things that you put on the floor and exercise with and shape oh had it right gosh. back in 1993 oh my goodness <laughs> i don't think i ever i don't think i had awareness that shape was a thing at that point did your mom get shape or how did you how was it in front of you my first exposure to glossy women's magazines which actually is like a salient moment in my life in the trajectory of my life and my career and and my entire worldview was at the orthodontist office oh. because of course I was, I was 10, I was 11, something like that. And, I, and we went to the orthodontist because my teeth were a disaster and they had 17 and shape. And that's when I started reading those magazines. I was obsessed and I got braces probably about four years before I should have, because my my teeth hadn't all grown in yet, mm. but um, they were offering a free Sony mini TV if you got them that month. And so I convinced my mom to let me get them. And of course, the, uh, the orthodontist sees a couple of patsies who are in it for the free TV and gives me braces. So I ended up wearing braces for six years when I could have just oh, worn them for two. Yeah. My yeah. gosh. Because <laughs> I wanted the free TV. And ask me if I ever got a single clear picture on that TV because it was the size of like a big cell phone. Oh, <laughs> Oh my gosh. I didn't even know that you could wear braces for that long. And here, I I think my braces, I think I had mine on for one year and one day because I was just like, just crank up the pain. Let's get these yeah. off. Yeah. <laughs> Six years. By the end, I was definitely doing like a little self-directed orthodontics because I would tighten them myself in between appointments just because I was so freaking sick of them. Wow. And in my school photos from grade five to like grade 10 or whenever i'm not smiling oh no. i don't think i've ever seen photos with you with braces because exactly there are none <laughs> yeah that's like Jaden. he all of his school photos with i don't think i've ever seen photos with him have braces um because he did the same like the awkward like mm. lips closed where you're like what's in your mouth <laughs> and he, i mean i wonder if i wonder if the the next generation will all switch over to invisalign so that like there is no you know, sudden, someday everyone will just be like, what? Braces? Yeah. What or is that? like, now they can put them behind your teeth. What? Instead of, yes. What? I know. I know. No, I did not know this. Uh-huh. Apparently yeah. I'm very out of touch with no, the, the advance. The advances in orthodontics are equal to the advances in like paper plates to <laughs> to real fitness gear. So it's an actual. It's been, a, it, it's, it's been a wild 25 years. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's been a wild 25 years and I haven't kept up. What else is going on that I don't know about? I don't know. But that's interesting. So, okay, so you were living in the South. Yes. And you're doing your 
you're you have orthodontic you have your braces on at 11 10 10 fifth grade gosh yeah like you barely even lost all your teeth i literally hadn't lost all my teeth (laughs) i don't think i i was like a late bloomer with teeth i think i didn't lose my first one until i was eight oh wow something ridiculous and like it, it was a problem i had what it was i'm remembering now it's all coming back to me thank you for this um I had adult teeth growing in behind the baby teeth. Yeah. And so that created a world of problems. It was like snaggle tooth territory and there's Stonehenge. (laughs) I want to find a photo of this. I I will have my mom dig some up. I'm sure that that they exist. Yeah. Well, I think... We've been friends for like six years. Something like that. And every time I talk to you, I find out about something that I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) Like just casually throwing things into the conversation like I already know about them and I've never heard about them ever before. Yeah, I'm I have a lot of stories that I don't think you've ever, ever heard. Well, and I think that part of it is that you're like you are so the way that you talk and what you create is so intentional and so. It's also very present in the moment. It's not like, did I ever tell you about the time? Like, and you're not, you're not constantly like, I'm going through this and I'm, you're not very, um, even your social media presence isn't like, hey, have we talked about me lately? Yeah. It's lots of like, have you looked at this beautiful table lately or this amazing thing? And you're obviously like behind that and knowing you, and I know that you put yourself into that, but it's not like you just talk about yourself all the time in any way shape or form even on your blog or even in your book it's a lot about other people yeah this is true (laughs) so 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 the so the dark the dark cloth the dark closet that sounds very dark and mysterious but so in the in the wild world of Anne sage that doesn't make it out into the public sphere yeah what you what you let it people into um is there is there something that's been a big part of your life or your journey that you that you've ever been like, maybe this is something I want to talk about, but I don't know how to or why to? Um, I mean, there's there's a lot and maybe I could just like put a couple out and then you can pick the road you want to go down. OK, because the thing the truth is, is is they're also related, right? Mm. Like. Um, for example, my, my history with like infidelity leading to divorce is intimately related to my history with, with food and disordered eating. And, and all of that is just formed on a bedrock of constant anxiety. So, um, there's, there's lots we could talk about Mm -hmm. and delve into. Mm. So Mm. how about about you pick what you think will be most um, valuable and supportive for your audience? Because for me, talking about that stuff is valuable in as much as it serves others. Mm. Like my experience at the end of the day, what I've gone through, what I've Uh, survived in my life to me it's precious because it's made me who I am but also because it can be a guiding light for other people Mm. Mm. well I appreciate that your your vulnerability and your bravery in that and and also I think that 
the more that I've seen, especially right now, even just this week with um, so many, so many horrible suicides going on, and oh. you know, oh, it's just heartbreaking with Kate Spade oh. and Anthony, Anthony Bourdain. Bourdain. I woke up to that this morning. I, I was like, got that gut punch feeling yeah. in my stomach. It yeah. breaks my heart. Yeah, absolutely. But, but like those, the struggles are so real, and these people yeah. that we look up to that. You know, it's so easy to say their life, their life is so perfect. Like, look at, look at all the money they have. Look at the travel they have. Look at the career they have. Like they have it all. And yet to realize that what they have isn't worth being here for is really, really hard. And what they're going through is enough of a burden that we don't know about it. And I think that that step towards, like you said, letting people into what you've learned and letting them know that they're not alone and what they're going yeah. for is a gift. And I hope that we as people will, and as a human, you know, species will, will basically evolve to a point that we realize like shame doesn't serve us. Sh- <laughs> yeah. Shocker. Newsflash. I mean, it really, I mean, like I'm not a therapist, but yeah. I'm pretty sure shame has never been a good thing in anyone's life and feeling alone in whatever it is you're going through, whether it is, you know, like you said, whether it is infidelity or eating disorder or whatever it is, like being alone in that there would be so many people listening to this right now that are like, wait, what? Yeah. You know? And well, I think also for me, the next evolution in talking about mental health, part of that will be recognizing that the very demons that drive our greatness are the ones that drive our downfall. Mm. Like for, for entrepreneurs, for creatives, for, for any human who has something in them that that is like bigger than them that they desperately need to get out, whether it's incredible fashion, whether it's art or food or whatever, um, the drive that pushes them to do ever bigger, better, greater things is also the drive that tells them in their head. And I'm speaking for myself. Mm. I'll, I'll start speaking from I like the the things that push me to to keep striving to be ambitious to look at an image that i created and say okay here are the things that are wrong that i will change next time those are the things that cause me to also look around at my life and be like here are the other things that are wrong and and those voices are really really challenging to ignore sometimes mm. sometimes they are louder than the voice inside me telling me everything's okay. Mm. And that it's such like a delicate balance. And I think about a friend I had in high school, like one of my closest friends, and he was literal music genius, like, you know, accepted into orchestra programs three years before he even finished high school. And he, he went away to college super young to do music and and had a nervous breakdown because it, ultimately he was diagnosed schizophrenic. Mm. And then of course the medication that they put him on affected his musical ability because the same brain processes that were driving his genius were driving his his schizophrenia. Mm. It was so heartbreaking. And I th- I think they eventually figured out a balance and like as 
thankfully, as we've gotten more advanced in the world of mental medication, that like that's that's better. But it's just it's fascinating to me how related those things are. Yeah, it and it is it is true that. I mean, so often, even now they're saying that like Einstein had autism and like all the, it's like, well, of course, like, of course, yeah, it, it doesn't, it's not a surprise to me yeah. at all. And yet this idea that we would just be like, what? Right. What? Right. He wasn't like some perfect person that sipped tea and like, you know, was some weird novel writer on the weekends that had his life together. Like also what is having your life together? That's the other thing is that I always, I was I was talking to Jaden and I said, I think we all have something like in terms of like if we all got to a point where we could really, truly talk about mental health in Mm -hmm. a way that was like, hey, our brains are really fragile. They're kind of their own ecosystem. Everybody's is a little different. And we're all like literally one second away from crazy. Literally, I (laughs) totally believe that. And I I think I I do think I saw like an Instagram caption that you wrote to that effect. (laughs) Oh, my God, she's finally admitting it. I I just think you you have too many bad days in a row or you you're you know you're in the sun too long or you're like emotional stress like any amount of of sort of outside like stimulus on your brain and suddenly like it really impacts who you are and how you show up so I was saying I was saying to him I was like I think everyone has something and like we not that not that I think it's important to label because I also think that that can really limit you if you just go in life and introduce yourself as like hi I'm Caroline and I'm whatever right but um but I just, I really do believe that everyone probably has something if they really were to get honest and to go get kind of mental health evaluations, they would be like, oh, and I don't think that everyone needs to do that. I do think that being aware of that and not of that possibility, just like what if, and I, and I even said to Jada, these are the things that you have to put up with if you're married to me. I'm like, what do you think you have? <laughs> and, then, and then he answers and then he's like, what do you think you have? And then I, and it's like, to me that it's just funny, but it's also like, yeah, probably like if I, if this is me at healthy, then which who knows, but if this is me at healthy in theory, then what's me like three steps down? And, and that can happen so fast. Like, totally. I mean, even with, Kate and Anthony, you know, they're 55 and 61. I mean, they're like twice my age, not quite, but almost twice my age. That's a lot of life to live where a lot can happen. Yeah. And it's so, to me, it's just such a huge reminder of like grace every, because you never know, Mm -hmm. you never know what someone's going through. And you also never know like what the next three years could bring for yourself, for myself. Um, and so anyway, going back to to you and what you said about your experiences and your journey being something that um, l- lets other people learn from you um, and how everything that you've gone through is tied together. What what has that what does that look like for you? And when you started to be aware of, like you said, anxiety and that yeah. that's like the very core of it all. The first time I remember experiencing anxiety. Interestingly enough, going back to what we were talking about before, was when I was five and we moved from Reno to Athens, Georgia, where my dad had gotten a job as a postdoc at at the University of Georgia. And it's a super, super clear memory. 
one that kind of was like a harbinger for my experience of anxiety to come, which is um, a physical experience in my gut of complete emptiness, like a gnawing emptiness in my core. And my mom and my sister get get it too. And my family, we call it the empty feeling. But I remember sitting in the backseat of my my mom's car as she was driving into our new apartment complex and I was just bawling and crying and saying mom I want to go home I want to go home and of course I meant Reno Mm. um and she says she said we are going home now and it was just pretty rough um so that's my first memory of anxiety in that particular way And then it's that feeling has been something that just has followed me throughout my life. I still get it today. Um, The other one that I often get and they kind of come in concert with each other is it's hard for me to get a full breath. It's like there's a gorilla sitting on my chest and no matter how much I'm like, (gasps) Mm. I can't fill my lungs. Uh, And so it's just. I grew up with those physical sensations but it wasn't until much later in my life where I connected them with, with oh, emotion and anxiety and they're related and there are patterns mm-hmm. and they can be a signal to me that supports me rather than a terrifying feeling that, that knocks me to the ground. Mm. Was that something that you talked to your parents about right away? Like as a child, did you let them know what was going on? Do you think they were aware? They were, I mean, I definitely remember telling my mom about the weird feeling after having it a few times. And and that's when I found out that, oh, she gets it too. And we started calling it the empty feeling. Um, I love my parents. I, I can't really say that while I was growing up, they had, um, I guess I call it emotional literacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we didn't really, gosh, it's. Feelings weren't something we really dug into. Mm. We used words like happy and sad. And, you know, I, I saw my dad blow up. My dad's a, a squisher and a blower. <laughs> that came out so wrong. Um, uh, he, my, dad okay. holds, my dad holds his anger and then blows up. So I definitely have those <laughs> memories as a child of my dad blowing up. Yep. Um, yeah, my dad. My dad's similar. Your dad's a squisher and a oh, blower. Oh, he's a squisher and a blower. Yeah, my dad. Um, my dad would have this thing where like I wouldn't know if he was mad or not, and then all of a sudden his jaw would crack when he got mad, and Ooh. I think he was like a clencher. And <laughs> he's then... a clencher and a squisher and a blower. <laughs> and so he he would just like I would I and it kind of made me like hypersensitive to mm. people because I I was always like trying to figure out are you are you about to. No blow. Um, and, and so being around that is always as for me, I'll speak for myself as a child. It was very like, how do I know if you're going to be mad? Like how, cause I, I wouldn't know. I couldn't predict it. Like you said, if you, if it's all squished down and then all of a sudden it just comes out of nowhere and you're like, Oh, it kind of trains me. It trained me to just be like kind of always a little on eggshells, like and and hypersensitive to weird body things and weird things that people do that make me be like, are you about to freak out at me? <laughs> oh, man. So I get it. I get yeah. the, the clencher, squisher, blower. Yeah. No, I definitely 
my childhood experiences of of trying to manage my parents' mood. I was an only child until I was six, and then my sister was born. So those really, really formative years, we were like this tight little trio. Mm. Um, and I definitely became hyper aware, especially hyper aware of how how I perceived myself affecting my mother's moods. Mm. Whether I did or not, who knows? Yeah. Probably 99% of the time I didn't. But for sure, the fallout of that has been me like having my spidey senses attuned to everyone in the room and being like, is what I'm doing okay by them? Is what I'm, how are they seeing me? How am I affecting them? How do I need to adjust so that I can affect them the way I want to affect them? Mm -hmm. Super manipulative. Mm -hmm. But it's very real. It is. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's very real. I relate to that big time. Um, And, and like you said, it's not until later in life that doing all this work and then being like, oh, that pattern I do might not uh-huh. be serving anyone, also, especially heads me. heads up, newsflash, I'm not that powerful. <laughs> well, you are. But. I mean, I am, but not in that way. Right. I don't want to be that powerful. Well, and I think sometimes, like, not to tangent, but sometimes I think it's about being like, um, it's not like, it's not all about me. Like, I think as a child and growing up and even into my young adulthood, I looked at every room and every relationship and every situation as like it's personal yeah and everyone is doing what they're doing at me and to me and all of a sudden being like oh hang on no actually no one cares everyone's obsessed with themselves everyone's like fighting their own battles no (laughs) one cares like literally no one cares yeah no i've i've spent so many nighttime hours replaying conversations in my head and being like oh how what could i have said so that could have gone differently and they're probably, oh my God, they're holding it against me that I said that one word instead of that one other word. <laughs> no one no. remembers these things no. except me. Yeah. No, no, not at all. And when when someone, even if they do like offend me, usually it's not on purpose. Like usually, or if I offend that, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, oh, realizing like everyone isn't thinking about you and me all the time, <laughs> even though they should be. They should be. Let's be real. <laughs> oh my gosh okay so okay so you're so you're five and moving to georgia and what was the evolution like for you through through sort of childhood growing up how long were you in georgia and what was that kind of process like of of realizing that you had this feeling and where did it what did it turn into so we lived in georgia till i was till the end of fifth grade so kindergarten to fifth grade my entire elementary career um, and definitely that's where food and body image stuff started becoming a thing mm. for me. And, and that for sure, like, I love you, mom, but definitely seeing my mom's relationship with food and her body really affected my relationship with those things. And they became pretty intimately tied with my emotional life pretty early on in so many different ways. One example, feeling validated. Uh, I can remember, I think I went on my first diet when I was seven or eight. Whoa. And I can remember being at the grocery store. My mom, my mom and I do this thing that horrifies my husband (laughs) to this day, but we'll like, get something at the grocery store and start eating or drinking it before we've paid for it. 
<laughs> that is so horrifying. Yeah. Oh, my word. He, he's mortified every yeah. time I do it. But when I was little, it would be that my mom would plant me in the grocery cart and um, we would get a, a chocolate milk or a strawberry milk, you know, like the bunny, the Nestle quick ones. Oh, with yeah. The bunny. And we would drink our chocolate milk while we shopped. Uh, I have no idea where my mom got this habit. Maybe her mom did it, too. It's entirely possible. We're all batshit. All the women <laughs> in my family. <laughs> no respect for the rules. But so I can remember saying no thank you to the chocolate milk and telling her that I was on a diet. Oh, wow. And she said how proud she was of me for my willpower. Oh, wow. Yeah. And now I look back and I'm like, oh, no, mom, why'd you say that? <laughs> But at the time, of course, yeah, mom's proud of me. Yeah. Awesome. Mm. And then um, the other really s- salient moment for me as relates to like food and emotion and my mom. Um, and this is a story I've I've written down. I've written this and it's in a computer somewhere. But um, so... On my eighth birthday, I made myself throw up for the very first time. And what had happened was we had a birthday party and all my friends were over and we were looking at the bike that I had gotten from my parents for my birthday. And I turned to my mom and said, have you frosted the cake yet? She said, no, she hadn't. And looking back, you know, she was working at a university. She had two young children, whatever. She hadn't frosted the cake yet. But I've always had this really kind of sassy, sarcastic sense of humor. And I turn to my friends and I say, my bum of a mother hasn't frosted the cake yet. Like an eight-year-old saying this, you mm-hmm. know, like some kind of old-timey 1930s gangster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can <laughs> and see I'm it. And I'm sure I read it in a comic book or something like that. I thought I was being funny. And it was like my mom's eyes shuttered closed and her face froze. She just turned into marble, which is something I do that my mom also does is just like the shutdown, the freeze up. Mm. And she went inside. I'm assuming she frosted the cake because it got frosted. Then she went into her bedroom and closed the door and wouldn't come out for the rest of the day. And we finished the party and we had cake. And I'm like, "What's, what's going on? Where's my mom? Obviously, I knew I was in trouble and I had done something wrong. So I went into the kitchen and I can't remember like planning this. I just remember it happening. I ate the rest of the cake and then I went to the bathroom and made myself throw it up. And then I came out of the bathroom crying and said, I'm sick. I'm sick, mom. I'm sick. Mm. And my dad came to take care of me. And I didn't make myself throw up again for like 11 years But I really, really think that that moment was like a pin in my timeline for, oh, shit's going to get real. Mm. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Did you tell anyone that That I made myself? I mean, I told my dad I was sick and I'd thrown up, but I didn't tell him that I'd done it myself. Mm. Um, And of course, I had no idea what I had done. 
Right. Like I wasn't aware of any kind of attempt to manipulate on my part. It was it was just like, oh, this happened. Mm. Yeah. Did you had you heard of anyone else doing anything like that before? Or did you have if any I had, I have no recollection. Yeah. Yeah. So so then from eight to you said 11 years later. Yeah. So what what happens in that 11 year time? So so when I was eight, like lots of little girls that age, I started getting chubby because, you know, puberty is coming. But I just remember being like super bummed about it because in my family, chubby was not cool. My grandmother, my mom's mom, definitely I heard her ragging on my mom for her weight my aunt's overweight and every time we would go out to lunch I would see my grandmother you know trying to limit her food intake um my mom thankfully she has stopped doing it but something I remember her doing a lot is we would be walking down the street and she would see a woman who maybe was fat maybe wasn't fat but she would say is my butt as big as that woman's am I as fat as that woman and and I would, of course, have to say no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, and then also just kind of watching my mom's eating patterns. They were, she would feed us, but then not eat dinner herself. Or she would sit down with celery at the table. Just like lots of pretty clear messaging around food and bodies that wasn't really very healthy and accepting mm. and then also going going to school where a lot of my friends were active and athletic and I liked reading and and so just being aware of them being like fit and having fun doing gymnastics and and I can't do a cartwheel so like comparing with my friends and being in this milieu with my family um I can remember being just very body conscious and food conscious for my entire childhood and adolescence. And I got breasts pretty young. I can remember longing for them <laughs> and wanting desperately because I wanted I wanted to go bra shopping. Mm. Like that's the cool thing about having boobs when you're 10. Yeah. Is getting to go for your first bra. Uh, and then by the time I was 13 and I was a double D, desperately just wanting them to go away <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's like oh uh-huh. how the worm has turned uh-huh. um but but then in in high school kind of really figuring out how to manipulate my weight by dieting and never getting super super skinny but getting slim enough that I had a nice shape and um, feeling really proud about that. Like, remember, oh, good for you for your willpower. Doesn't feel that feel amazing. So, so just heading off to college with like a bunch of messed up things in my head around food and bodies. Hmm. Um, and, and, and also I had a pretty tough adolescence in terms of my relationship with my parents. Um, we're a very intellectual family. And so as as my emotional life really started bubbling, as they do in your teen years, um, it was it was hard to talk about that stuff. I didn't even know the words to put on it. 
I would just like my dad maybe blow up one day and then my mom would desperately want to know what was going on and I wouldn't even know how to tell her or um, just stuff with with friends, like boyfriends and high school stuff, right? Yeah. But, but not having the emotional vocabulary and the emotional awareness and an environment in which those things were discussed. Like, I think that's so, so common for everyone of our generation and before. Like, we that vocabulary just wasn't there for us. Mm, not at all. Um, and so the way I dealt with it was by not really having any friends, hanging out in the library every single lunch to do my homework. I was a stellar student and genuinely loved school. Like I, I loved my classes. I went above and beyond for every project and, and of course got external validation for that. Um, so I, I left high school totally unprepared to whether the emotional ecosystem of college, mm. I guess is the most succinct way to put it. And then there I was in college and the incident of making myself throw up again for like the first time since I was eight. Um, and here's where infidelity comes in. I had a boyfriend that I'd had all through high school and we stayed together through through college through almost all of college actually but that freshman year of college I met a boy in the first three months and we became involved with each other and the first time we were physical with each other I felt so much guilt and so much shame because I had this boyfriend back home and also because guilt and shame around sex was definitely very familiar to me in my own family mm. that, um, that I, I went and made myself throw up and I hadn't even eaten anything. It was more just like a, Oh my God, I need to get this thing that just happened out of me. It was mm -hmm. like my entire psyche needed to reject what had just happened the shame, the guilt, get it out of me. Um, and then I didn't throw up again for another year. Uh, but that third time was the charm because like four years later, I was hospitalized for bulimia. Mm. Um, and in that year from freshman year to sophomore year, the the fallout of getting involved with that guy it blew up in my face i ended up by february with with no friends at college and just was so completely alone and isolated and desperately wanted to transfer schools and and even applied to the school where my my high school sweetheart was going and i got in and um and my mom freaked out and said, you'll never make anything of yourself. You have to go back to Stanford. Um, and so I, I went back after like going home for spring break and begging my parents to let me transfer schools. And, and it was so hard to go back that I had a panic attack at, uh, at the security 
to get through the airport and the security guard had to put me in a cab and send me back to my parents house and they were still like nope you'll be a failure if you don't go back to stanford oh wow and then my mom did that freeze out thing she does but for like three months so there i am at school i have no friends because they all sided with this other guy in the the big blow up and um so I started counting calories and I started restricting my food and because everything was chaos. Everything was out of control and there was something really clear and beautiful that I could control. And, um, you know, my body only let me do that for so long before it was like, oh, no, you need to eat something. And then I would eat something and the guilt and the shame and the swirling emotions and oh, I know a really good way to get rid of this. And that's kind of how it came at, came to be. Mm. Yeah. Did anyone know what you were going through in the middle of that, in that time? I mean, people knew about the events of what I was going through. Certainly the people involved, uh, my parents knew um, but they didn't know about the emotional distress, I think. Because mm. like we talked about before, everyone is in their own emotional distress, mm -hmm. right? So the friends who kind of, I won't say abandoned me because ultimately I, with, I withdrew. But the friends with whom I had a falling out... I'm sure they were going through their own pain and confusion around that because we were all really close and then all of a sudden we weren't. Mm. What happened was um, my high school boyfriend came to visit Stanford and they all took him out for coffee while I was at class and told him what had been going on with this other guy. Oh, really, really not cool. Yeah, that's... <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess they're not my friends and I'm never speaking to them again. So that... Uh, that betrayal, what felt like a betrayal at the time. And I, I guess maybe objectively it was, but mm. it just like kind of, I'm not, I'm not someone who trusts easily. Mm. And I definitely think that that was an event that contributed to that, mm. to me not trusting. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, people knew events were happening people didn't know my level of emotional distress i don't think i was present to my level of emotional distress because mm -hmm. again when not having the vocabulary for oh i'm this this terrible terrible feeling right now is isolation it's betrayal it's anger it's freaking rage yeah mostly i had just grown up with there's also some important backstory around my mom's childhood and and it was very chaotic um and so for her yelling in our house wasn't allowed um getting really really upset wasn't allowed closing our doors wasn't allowed um like the, there was this goal of like keep everything on the nice and even yeah in a response to her own childhood so for me um the eating disorder was like this twisted attempt to keep the emotional life nice and even mm. like if i'm feeling something don't feel it eat and then throw up yeah 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 a way of of processing what you're going through and putting putting a language on it 
that when you don't have a language. Exactly. Yeah. You just said you don't think you were aware of how how intense it was in the moment. Like you you weren't doing it thinking to yourself, I have an eating disorder or I this is did it feel normal in the moment? It definitely didn't feel normal. Um it felt a lot of things at once. It felt like a relief. Well, so it's also important to break down the mechanism of bulimia. It's kind of a roller coaster. And it wasn't something that I broke down for myself to really understand until years into therapy. Mm. Um, so there's there's lots of different forms of eating disorders and, and bulimia even. Like, you know, for me what it looks like is the binge, which is like a ton of food, more food than I possibly can explain to someone who doesn't get it but just like twenty thousand calories at once wow like multiple gallons of ice cream multiple big bags of chips four liters of soda like just and it's i stopped tasting it i stop experiencing the sensation of chewing it's it's like just an autopilot and my brain goes numb which I assume is close to when a drug addict gets high. Just mm-hmm. like numb the fuck out. Mm. So there's there's that piece of it. And then there's the purge, which for me took the form of of vomiting, of exercising, of using laxatives. Just like get it all out. Um, so So like the feelings that accompany the lead up to a binge, right? Cause, cause like you, ha- I have to go back and be like, okay, well, what's the trigger? Mm-hmm. There's the lead up to the binge, there's the binge and then there's the purge and then there's the aftermath of the purge. So it's like this horrific cycle that, that becomes chemically addicting as well as um, psychologically addicting. But the feelings range from, you know, like just, absolute desperation i will die if i don't eat as much as i can right the freak now to you know like a peak of both physical pain but also emotional numbness and then purging vomiting lots and lots of anger like it's a violent act Mm. it's an extraordinarily violent act and i can remember in college i would be throwing up And the mental image I would have would be one of yelling at my mom and yelling at my grandma, just like yelling and screaming and yelling and screaming um, in my head. And then afterwards, a combination of kind of like a euphoric high, but also physical exhaustion. And that used to be the only way I could sleep at night in college was if I had thrown up before bed. Because my anxiety was just so, so bad. Mm. Um, But, you know, speaking like from a medical standpoint, 
the body releases endorphins in response to the vomiting. So it gets addicted to those endorphins. And it's like, the for someone who's chemically depressed, like I almost certainly was mm-hmm. by that point, those endorphins after the whole process are like the only time you feel even kind of okay. <laughs> so in a way it was like, it was just me figuring out how to make myself feel okay mm. when, I, when I hadn't been taught other coping mechanisms to do so. And I just stumbled on it. Mm. And who knows what else I might have stumbled on. Alcohol, drugs, self-harm, like another thing that could have hurt me as badly, if not more. That was just like, you know, bulimia has been my drug of choice. Mm. When did you realize that you needed to get help with it or, or start talking about it? Pretty quickly, thankfully. Um, it, it hadn't been going on for a super long time when I first went to the counselor at, at the health center on campus. And, um, and then a couple months later... This is one of those other stories that (laughs) I'm not sure I've told you. I maybe have. I got arrested for shoplifting at the school bookstore. Have I told you that one? I think this is one that I heard. This was one that I heard (laughs) recently and almost (laughs) fell off my chair. Like I was like, excuse me, what? Like you just casually dropped it in like, oh, and that was when I got arrested. And I was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Was I was I your bridesmaid? Because I've never heard this story before. <laughs> so I got arrested for shoplifting at the school bookstore. At you, Stanford. At Stanford University. <laughs> Stanford felon, you guys. And it was a felony because of the dollar value of books that I was arrested for shoplifting. Oh can, my I gosh. Just, can I tell oh it my... as quickly as yes. possible? I need to tell, tell the story. I, you, have, you have to tell okay. it. Okay. Also, you graduated from Stanford, right? I did. Wow. I do. I hold a bachelor's degree with honors with a three. 3.8 GPA from Stanford University. You know, uh, you amaze me. You absolutely amaze me. All right. So so in the context of I am extraordinarily mentally ill and not doing okay at college, um, I went home for Christmas and I got some gift certificates for barnesandnoble.com. Barnesandnoble.com. And they were meant to be used for textbooks. So I get back to school and I place the order for the textbooks on barnesandnoble.com. But I need the texts right away for class. Yeah. So I buy them at the bookstore and I check the ISBN numbers. That's like the number on a book that is the code for the exact edition of that book to make sure I'm buying identical copies to the ones that I ordered off barnesandnoble.com. This is how a Stanford student goes about committing a felony, you guys. (laughs) So now there are two sets of copies of books in the picture. Yeah. I start reading the copies in my possession, marking up the margins, dog-earing the pages, etc., I've got three weeks 
for the Barnes and Noble copies to arrive so that I can return those copies at the bookstore and get my money back. Even now, Full as proof. I tell this story, I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> but at the time, it made perfect sense. So the three weeks go by and the copies of the books aren't arriving. This is what, like 2003 or four. It, there isn't two day prime shipping. Yeah. Weeks are going by and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to be out like a hundred bucks because I used the gift certificate. But then I footed the bill myself at the bookstore. A hundred dollars is so much money. So I hatch a plan the night before the like the cutoff date for getting my money back. I stroll into the bookstore with a really big tote bag and systematically retrieve a copy of every book that I've purchased from the shelves. And then I go to the bookstore cafe and I sit at the cafe with the stack of books on my table and I drink like a mocha uh, <laughs> and I do some homework and then I go to customer service and I return the third set of books with the plan being when the Barnes and Noble books arrive, I will put them on the shelf <laughs> so that Stanford bookstore will not be out any copies of books. Everyone was supposed to break even, you guys. <laughs> Everyone was supposed to break even. Oh, my God. So I actually pull it off. I, I, the return goes perfectly smoothly because, of course, there's there's nothing suspicious on the surface. Here's a girl with a receipt and here's the books. And then I step out of the bookstore and from behind the bushes this little man and I remember him being like a little ratty wiry haired guy like jumping out from behind the bushes and saying open your backpack ma'am and of course I opened the backpack and there's nothing in it because I only had one cop one set of copies that have already successfully been returned and I could have just played dumb and walked away and gotten away with it oh, and then no. when the books came from the internet put them back on the shelf and and like the plan would have gone through <laughs> but I'm me and I break down crying and tell him everything <laughs> and of course he's so confused because, because you have an empty backpack. Well, and the story is complete. Just like it's like twists and turns and there's three sets of cops. How many books are what? Then he takes me to the security guards room, like in the bowels of the bookstore, three levels down and shows me security footage of me just like picking up all books and then sitting there at the coffee table for hours and and so yeah, I got I got arrested and charged with with felony theft. That's in, that's such a intense charge. <laughs> felony. Yeah, because I think I was something like three dollars over the the dollar amount between a misdemeanor and a felony. Oh so God. I ultimately the reason this story is pertinent is because I I had to tell my parents that I was facing shoplifting charges. And my dad, um, my dad came out to school and then we, we went for a visit to my uncle's house who was living in LA. And that's when I told him about the bulimia and I've never talked to him since about like, what was that like for him? Mm. I just remember 
he he was like, all right, well, we'll bring you home. And there was just this huge sense of relief because I had been wanting to come home for months and months and months. Um, so they they pretty quickly brought me home. This was in the spring of my sophomore year and put me to work. I got a job at Starbucks. Um, we found a therapist and and my job was to like pay for her out of my money at Starbucks. And then that fall, I started um, classes at the University of Toronto so that, you know, I didn't fall behind. God forbid I fall behind in my university education while I'm healing from this deadly illness. But but we didn't see it like that. I didn't. They didn't. Yeah. It was just like, oh, well, this must be happening because she has too much time on her hands. Oh, wow. So like pull up your bootstraps, get her done. Um. So I did a year at the University of Toronto and then felt like, oh, okay, things are kind of sort of under control. And I was still binging and using food to mask emotions, but the therapist I had at the time didn't really break down the mechanism of my eating disorder for me. And so I didn't recognize that, oh, binging is part of this. It's, it's not just, I'm not throwing up, so I'm okay. Yeah. And I really wish I had that that connection had been made for me or that I had figured it out because then I would have known I still wasn't okay. Because mm. what happened is I went back to Stanford to finish out my senior year. And within two months, I was right back to where I had been. But by that point, I had broken up with that longtime boyfriend and was seeing someone new and his family had a fair bit of experience with mental health stuff. And so when I came home for Christmas that, that senior year at Stanford, they saw pretty quickly that something wasn't right with me and I talked to them about it. And simultaneous to that, I did tell my parents that I wasn't well again. And my mom said, well, if you're throwing up again, then why are you gaining weight? Which is the worst thing. It was like, oh, no. just the worst. Oh. Um, and so my, my then boyfriend's family kind of became like a safe haven because they recognized that something wasn't right and that it, that I wasn't a bad person for it. Mm. Like, I don't, I don't think my parents ever meant to make me feel like I was a bad person for going through what I was going through, but just like their, the weight of their concern, I perceived it as judgment, which I think is probably really common. Like your parent, my parents look really worried and scared. I have made them worried and scared. I am a bad person. Um, but then, you know, my boyfriend's parents were like, you know, you could just not go back to school at all. And we could try and get you into a program to help you. And that could be your one job for now is getting better. No one had ever said that to me before. And so I told my parents I wasn't going back to school. And I was staying almost exclusively at my boyfriend's family's house. And my parents said they were going to call the police and charge them with kidnapping. Oh, my. 
And I was like, well, I just, I just can't talk to my parents for a while. And I'm, I know that broke their heart. But the level of just like all-consuming fear around interacting with my parents, it was insurmountable. I couldn't even pick up the phone to call them. When they called, I couldn't talk to them. So, you know, it, it was my psyche again just being like, no, this is what you need right now. So that's how I ended up in, in the hospital. Mm. And did, was that a turning point of, of understanding the connection of it all and the cycle of it all? Definitely, that was a big step. I mean, I would be lying if I said that I still completely understand my my eating disorder, my relationship with food and body and emotions. Like, I think that's just our human journey mm. is an ever-evolving understanding of ourselves. Um, but, but that was a pretty big step. And the hospital also was just really critical for supporting me and breaking the cycle for long enough that it felt like, oh, there's some some light at the end of this tunnel. Because again, remember, uh, it's an addictive cycle. It's an addiction. Yeah. Did you go through like withdrawals? Uh, not not the way that I think a heroin addict goes through withdrawals, but for sure, it's really uncomfortable to be experiencing emotions that I normally would mask with food and then not not to be able to do it like that's a withdrawal of sorts I guess Mm -hmm. sitting with emotions for the first time in my life (laughs) yeah I yeah (laughs) it's a big thing I mean I'm I've I'm I haven't had an eating disorder but I have been very late to the game of emotions (laughs) (laughs) and it's a very like oh 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 that's what that is or oh i it is kind of a a repression that you can just kind of cope in other ways Mm -hmm. and or i i have coped in other ways um and so to finally say i'm ready to i'm ready to go in or i know how to yeah because i think a lot of times i was ready i just didn't know how to i didn't know and a lot of like it is a lot of what how you grow up and so for me yeah same like my family didn't talk about emotions and when you know when my siblings and I talk about what we learned about emotions my my siblings will make reference to things where my parents specifically said you know don't don't listen to your feelings they'll lead you astray things like that (laughs) because feelings do they are waves and they can and I get I get like your parents and my parents they did their absolute best that they possibly could with the knowledge that they had in the moment so am I angry? And like, do I think that they're bad parents? Not a chance. Yeah. Do I look back and go, Ooh, I learned some things that I maybe wouldn't want anyone else to learn ever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's true. Um, so I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying about being like, Oh, emotion. Oh, Oh, emotion. And they still take me by surprise. They still take me by surprise after so many years of learning to name them, learning to sit with them. Sometimes I choose not to sit with them and eat a bunch of grapes instead. Like last night, you know, food 
for better or worse, my relationship with it will always be complicated. Mm. I think that's something that I've almost kind of sort of come to accept. But last night, like, I was tired and I wanted to stop working for the day and watch ER on TV. But there were still things that I had said I would get done. And I was resentful about it. And so I, like, crammed a bunch of grapes in my mouth and knew I was doing it while I was doing it. And then got mad at myself for doing it. The miracle of last night compared to my life when I was 21 years old is that I didn't then go to the store and buy five gallons of ice cream and eat one of them on the way home from the store. Instead, I like, I kid you not, I went into my bedroom and I closed the door and I pounded my fists on the bed and I screamed into my pillow and also not into my pillow. I'm really sorry to my neighbors. (laughs) (laughs) And then... And then put my hand on my heart and did some deep breathing and then did a few cycles of sun salutations. And then I went and pet my cat. And then I talked to my husband. And like, holy crap, what a miracle. Where I was just like, okay, I'm angry. I'm not entirely sure why. I've got some ideas about why. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter why I'm angry. I just am. And I've come to see emotions as... Just different forms of energy. Mm. And we're really powerful in that we can choose how we move that energy. And this is this is thoughts and beliefs that I'm coming to kind of recently. Like in the past year, I started working with an amazing Tao yoga coach uh, with like Qigong and yoga and, and just this idea of harnessing energy around us, in us, and moving it in ways that serve us. Um, and so the act of just like breathing and letting the anger rise and moving it out of me in physical ways with my voice, with my body, I have that tool in my toolkit. And when I choose to use it, it's amazing. Having the presence of mind to choose to use it, that's the real gift. I don't always choose to use it, but when I do, I'm always really grateful to myself. Mm. And I always say at the end of every um, every meditation session, every yoga session, I, I thank myself for having the willingness to do it because that's really the most essential thing. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. You can have the tools, but if you don't use them, then they're just sitting there collecting dust. <laughs> they're just collecting dust. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would you say that you have an eating disorder, that you had an eating disorder? I would say I have an eating disorder, yeah. Because, like, in full honesty, sometimes it pops up again. Um, never as all-consuming as when I was in college, but for sure in, in like, the... 15 or however many years since being in the hospital, I've had relapses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it something that you think that other people or yourself, do you ever get over it? Do you ever, you know, work through it? Is it a mental health thing where it is something like bipolar, where it's, you don't just 
get over it. It's a thing that you 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 have and you learn how to work with it as a part of like you said at the very beginning like it's it's the darkness that right. that makes you who you are and kind of pulls out your greatness in the process. That's a really good question and it's one that I don't have a clear answer for because I'll just say I'm I'm really really careful when talking about this stuff and I don't talk about it often but whenever I do I'm really careful to to remind the listener that I'm not a medical professional. I'm not an addiction specialist. I'm just someone who has a personal experience with this disease, illness, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. Um, and there's so many different schools of thought on eating disorders and recovery and just like addictions and addictive behaviors and recovery. And I've heard of people who quote unquote get over it and never worry about it again. And I've heard of people who deal with it in some way for the rest of their life, whether they're actively symptomatic or not. Um, I, I have done some 12 step work it was great for me at the time. It's not something I'm a part of now because it just wasn't the right fit for a number of reasons. But I definitely know that in the 12-step environment or, or my experience of it, it was more like you're never really over this. You're never truly fixed. You just have a daily reprieve. Mm. And that was one of the things about 12-step that ultimately didn't sit well with me because... A part of me, I think, holds out hope. I'm probably going to start crying. Like, part of me holds on to the hope that there will be a day when I don't worry about food and I don't worry about what my body looks like and what I'm putting into my mouth or not putting into my mouth. Like, I don't see myself as broken, so I don't think there's something to fix. But I definitely would love some freedom from... The amount of space that this stuff still takes up in my brain. I want my brain space back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with that. Um, and so I just, I just keep doing my work as best I can. Mm-hmm. I've been really inspired by your bravery and and your commitment to this work because I have known you for a number of years and I have seen you in different seasons of health and you are so committed and so persistent at being the healthiest version of yourself that you can be Um, and I'm grateful for your vulnerability in sharing this today and um and I also just want you to know that, um, yeah, I love you. And, and I'm, and I'm also proud of you. Like I'm very, very amazed at, um, the journey that you've been on just in the six years that I've known you Thank and you. you're definitely at your healthiest. So uh, that I've ever seen you and yeah. known you in those six years. So I also hold space for you to, to not have to feel that burden. Um, 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm sorry I started laughing in the middle of that because I was seeing you without a nose, just like you told me would happen with these microphones. It's true. There's just big eyes. Yes. When you're staring at someone and they have a big, big microphone covering half their face, your brain starts getting crazy and making jokes and then you laugh at all the wrong times. All the wrong times at the most vulnerable (laughs) moments of acknowledgement, which is like, just notice. Just notice. It's hard for me to receive acknowledgement. Exactly. Yeah. Um, My therapist would be like, oh, diversion. mm, What's going on there that you can't sit in the emotion? Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, And that lands. Yeah. I own that. Um, But something you said while I was trying not to laugh at your, your noseless face is that I'm the healthiest you've seen me. And I love this idea that I can be my healthiest and still stuff my face with grapes the night before. Like the one doesn't cancel out the other. They can exist simultaneously. And um, and that there's like, that they're neutral ultimately. There's no judgment, good or bad on either which I think going back to what we were saying earlier around just the, the cultural conversation around mental health, um, labels can be really limiting. Absolutely. And for sure I have used illness and addiction and all of that stuff as a label to limit me. But at the same time, I think labels can also be a valuable tool for people because if if you've been going through something really, really challenging, like I, I think of, for example, you know, Mariah Carey recently disclosed that she's bipolar and for decades she experienced the symptoms, but then it wasn't until she was diagnosed that it was like, oh, there's nothing like morally inherently wrong mm. here. I have a condition. And so the they can also be a real blessing. And I think the key with labels is learning how to use them to our benefit, not to our disadvantage. And part of that is removing judgment from them mm-hmm. of any kind. Like words, they're powerful, but ultimately they're neutral. And it's the meaning that we put on them mm. that gives them their power. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And what you're saying, what comes up for me is um, I think there's this fear for a lot of people, um, you know, they're experiencing symptoms of something and they're going through something that's a burden, that's a struggle for them. And they there's a fear of what if I get diagnosed and then I have a label that I don't that I don't like, that it doesn't, it's, it's like embarrassing, it's shameful, it has a stigma attached to it. And so it's easier to just kind of go along without it, without acknowledging it, that it's there. And what I've found in watching my friends, in watching people like, you know, Mariah Carey, um, also my friend, Mike, my friend Science Mike, who was on the podcast last week, he just got diagnosed with autism. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. And at first, like when he, cause he sent me a text, he sent a text and I was like, okay, are you okay? Do you need to like, do you need to talk? Cause I go into like, what, what, do you, what does that feel like to hear something about yourself that suddenly like there's this like, and I immediately like texted his wife, like, how are you doing? Are you okay? And she's like, I'm so relieved. Oh my gosh. I can imagine. Because you, it's like, like what you said, it's like, oh, this, 
this set of symptoms that I've been battling with. Now there's a now there's an answer. There's an answer and there's a there's a course of action. Yes. Yes. And so instead of it being like, why am I like this? I'm alone uh-huh. in this. No one else understands. It's like, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. This thing that I'm going through is I'm not alone. There's actually a word for it. Other people have yeah, gone through this and a been okay. Of people now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so both of them were, they were both like, no, we're great. We're, actually, we're, <laughs> we're having a party over here. It's a very quiet. It's a very quiet. Non-stimulating party. The lights are party. off. The sound is down. But we're there celebrating. There are no people except us. Exactly. But he's, I mean, Which he's honestly so- sounds like my perfect party. <laughs> it does. It does. You're like with your cats. Um, no, but he, he said that when he read about autism, specifically like on the spectrum in this area, the area that he identifies mm-hmm. with, he said it felt like reading his biography. Yes. And I'm just like, okay, there, I learned so much from that, just yeah. from that experience of it's actually me that put on the, oh, are you mm-hmm. feeling shame? Is that, are you, is this hard for you? And they're <laughs> like, no, literally, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> we feel free. Yeah. There's a new road that we can walk down together because we've always just been standing here in the dark, confused. Yeah. And now someone gave us a flashlight and said, that's your path. Yeah. And that's massive. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I hear what you're saying about just like getting, putting, putting words on it can really, identify the path mm-hmm. of of action not labeling to kind of cop out and just sit with your diagnosis totally yeah and I think about along those lines something that I struggle with that is one of my many crosses to bear is comparison big time comparer with everyone around me um And then we both recently did this metabolic balance, you know, nutrition plan Mm -hmm. where we got our blood testing. And one of the things I've always compared myself to, like saying these things out loud, it sounds so nutty, but I've been so jealous of how you can go like all day without eating, right? Because my obsession is food and eating and wouldn't, wouldn't my life be so much better if I just didn't have to eat? But for me, like, I get hangry after four hours, probably because I've fucked with my metabolism so much over the years. But anyway, so getting these blood tests back and seeing numerically, according to science, of course I get hangry after four hours because I'm hypoglycemic. Uh-huh. And and it's like, oh, I have permission to stop comparing myself to Caroline in that particular way. There's a <laughs> host of other ways I can compare myself and judge myself less worthy. But at least one of them has been crossed off the list. <laughs> I, I swear to you, if we went through thing by thing, I could give you all oh, the know. information you of need to cross course. it off. Of course. Of course. But who would I be without my neuroses? Well, I cling so tightly to them. I don't want you to cancel them out. That's true. Exactly. <laughs> we don't want to get rid of the darkness. Then it's just boring. Then we're then just I'm boring. Then I'm just boring and I have nothing to say in the world. All my best stories spring from my neuroses. That's so true. Well, and every character, every good character in any movie, oh, book, yeah. 
or story has something that they have to overcome. Otherwise, they're just boring as hell. And no one yeah, cares. No one writes a book about them. Uh, it's the no worst one. book ever. No one. <laughs> I couldn't cope with Little Women. It was too <gasps> vanilla. Yeah. Or like Black Beauty. Uh, I mean, there was the fire. I don't remember that. I don't think I finished the book. <laughs> all of those books, all of those books where the cover was just like a watercolor illustration oh, no. of girls being nice. No. Mm-mm. No. What's the other what's the other really nice girls story? Annie something? No. Oh, Anne of Green Gables. Yes, can't do it. Yeah, nope. that one's rough. I tried to read it and I was like, oh, I am crying with boredom. Yeah. I'm sure someone is listening right now and they're mad and they're like, she overcomes blank. <laughs> but I'm like, no. No, I couldn't overcome my boredom. Yeah, I mean, I feel a certain loyalty to to Lucy Maud Montgomery, the author of those books, just because, like, Prince Edward Island in Canada, and I spent a big chunk of my life in Toronto. But um, snooze fest. <laughs> big time snooze Give fest. Give me drama. Yeah. So instead I read, um, let's see, what were some of my, f- oh, I loved the Ramona books. Do you remember those? Like yeah. she was so saucy and so sassy, saucy. and I really identified with those. Totally. And then as I got older, I just jumped straight to like Stephen King. Oh dang! Hey, <laughs> Stephen King's an amazing author, oh. though. So good. Yeah. So good, phenom. Even if you can't cope with his movies because they're too intense, his books. Oh, come his on. books are masterpieces. Yeah. He knows what's up. I also love that he's so active on Twitter. He makes me laugh. He's great on Twitter. I love him. <laughs> I know. We're yes. like living in a time where some of our favorite authors I, are like I real people. I do appreciate that. I really appreciate, you know, and, and I know that part of the podcast is talking about online life and social media. And I, I really appreciate the window into the brains of of some of my favorite you know, cultural contributors mm. that I get through Twitter. One of my favorites... Uh, there's there's a guy named Kurt Anderson. He's like a radio personality and also a novelist, and he's great on Twitter. Mm. Highly recommend. Mm. So before, because we're I want to talk more about social media. Yeah. But before we dive into social media, I have a couple last questions about eating disorders yeah. and and just mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, so how are eating disorders misportrayed in? You know, in our culture, in society, in America, um, like we've been talking about with just stigmas and taboo and and just things feeling like oh i can't i can't say i have that because it will mean all these things um how are they misportrayed and and how would you define it not necessarily like how science defines it sure. but what does it mean to you well you know i think of bulimia as like the ugly stepchild of eating disorders. And that's probably just my own shame talking. But I don't know. I just don't hear as much about it as I hear about anorexia. Mm. And I think there are a lot of things. I mean, you tell me, like, would you say that's accurate? Like publicly, we hear a lot more about like people dying of anorexia and anorexia is so much more of a visible eating disorder. Yeah. Yeah. I always just hear that people who have bulimia have really bad teeth. Right. Bad but teeth. But you have great teeth. So I, have, I mean, six years of braces, I damn well better. <laughs> um, I know. I know. So, mir- so, so the thing about bulimia is it's a, it's so much easier to hide often bulimic people are quote-unquote normal weights 
Um, and it can kind of come and go. Like maybe there will be a six month period where it's just really rough and then I, it, it's under control for a while. Um, and it, it is life threatening, but not in like that dramatic after school special kind of way that our anorexia is. And then also speaking quite frankly, I think it's just a grosser eating disorder. Like it's gross. There's throw up everywhere all the time. If I had a dollar for every toilet I've had to wipe down, I would be so rich. Um, it's a yucky, yucky disease. And this is my twisted mind speaking, frankly, but like there have been times when I've been jealous of of women who are anorexic because it just seems so clean and tidy and under control. Like there's a chaos to bulimia that is so frightening, which is ironic because it's in and of itself an attempt to control the chaos Mm. and a really poignant lesson that, oh no, you can't control the chaos, right? Um, But I think those are all reasons why it just doesn't get as much public conversation as more visible and kind of easier to both recognize and discuss eating disorders. Um, As far as like my understanding of it, I do see it like under the umbrella of addictions. So I sometimes will tell people when they ask why I don't drink or do drugs because I don't, I say I have a history of substance abuse. And so I just prefer to stay away from that stuff. Mm. Cause that's the truth. Yeah. Food is a substance and I'm real familiar with how to abuse it. Um, and if they want to think that I'm an alcoholic or like a drug addict, that's fine. Um, so that's kind of like how I frame it in my mind that it's an addiction that a lot of people, including myself, believe it's one of the toughest addictions to have and to manage because with drugs or alcohol or or gambling, there's just a clear line. You either you're doing it or you're not right um, with food. And also I count um, like sex addiction and, and love addiction in this as well. Like we have to eat. We have to be in relationships. And so the self-awareness and and self-honesty required to be present to whether you are in an addictive behavior or a healthy behavior, that is so real and so constant and sometimes so exhausting. (laughs) Wow, yeah. I haven't thought of it like that. Where like people in, you know, AA can just be like, put down the alcohol, you know, don't walk into a bar, don't hang out with your friends if they're at happy hour, if that's a trigger. But for you, like, you can't just not eat. There have been times when I've wished I could, Mm. like when I've just been like, I wish I could just not have this biological need because it is so confusing and terrifying. And one of the sad things is, is that, um, you know, the, the years of the eating disorder, really messed with my hunger signals. Mm. So in addition to like the hypoglycemia that I, I now deal with, I just, I can be, I can feel like I'm starving 
an hour after I've eaten. And I don't know, is that real? Is that my brain? So I can't, it's harder for me to trust those biological signals that other people don't give a second thought to. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That, that does add an extra level of difficulty. Yeah. And, and then there's like, just the reality that I, I know when I know, like I know if I'm stuffing something in my mouth because I'm in a socially anxious situation versus I'm eating a calm, intentional, focused meal. Um, I know. Yeah. I always know my, my body and my gut tells me it's whether I, again, whether I choose to be present to it and shift into something different if it's happening. Mm. How do, how does other people support, um, if someone is having an eating disorder. Oh, geez. Yeah. And yeah. that's even even like me as your friend. Like what works and what doesn't work? Does anything work? No. No. Okay. Yeah. That's the short answer. No, because it's, it's like with other addictions and really anything in life, we can only control ourselves. Um, so, you know, my amazing husband, bless his heart, He's just like, I feel like sometimes walking on eggshells because he doesn't know how to be in relationship with me and food in this triangle. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll tell him, you know, if you see me and we're at a party and I'm like going back to the hors d'oeuvre trays, you have my permission to say something. And then it'll happen and he'll say something and I'll be like, fuck off, I want these tortilla (laughs) chips. (laughs) Uh-huh. <laughs> right so he, he he's damned if he does and he's damned if he doesn't ultimately at the end of the day it's it's my responsibility mm-hmm. um and if if i want to request support i can but i also have to be i get to be open to receiving that support and for me historically receiving support is like one of the hardest things mm. again because there i am eating my tortilla chips and i just want to eat my tortilla chips for whatever reason be it a healthy reason or a not healthy reason and then this asshole comes over and tells me i'm eating too many chips and i bite his head off <laughs> yeah 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 so it for you is it almost more knowing knowing the signs before you like catching yourself before you get to a point where other people would even be able to be like, hey, have you had enough? You know what yeah. I mean? Like knowing that you're putting yourself in situations where you're going to feel stressed or you're going to feel anxious and and going in going in with that awareness. Is that... That is- often works. It doesn't always. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... I think the most important thing is practicing letting go of judgment no matter what happens because I can make all the best intentioned plans and then something will snap and I'll eat a basket of tortilla chips that I hadn't decided in advance that I was going to eat and the like last night with the grapes right my victory was after the fact, just like recognizing and allowing what was coming up, accepting that it had happened, not beating myself up for it, or 
you know, beating myself up for a bit, but then shifting into something different. Um, one of my favorite, favorite stories uh, is, and I'll probably, I'll just paraphrase it uh, so I don't butcher it, but it's the story of Buddha and the second arrow. And as I recall, Buddha is speaking to one of his students and he says, if you are struck by an arrow, does it hurt? And the student's like, yeah, of course. If you are struck by a second arrow, does it hurt? And the student says, yeah, of course. And then the Buddha says, well, the first arrow is what happens to you. It's the external events and it can hurt. The second arrow is the judgment you put on yourself for the pain you are feeling or for whatever is whatever you are experiencing. Mm. We can't control the first arrow. We can't control what happens that maybe triggers us. And brain chemistry being what it is, we can always control our reaction to the trigger, but we can control our response to the reaction to the trigger. And that for me is like my ever evolving journey and quest mm. is a gentle loving response to my first reaction mm. whatever it may be mm. so last question on this one um let's say someone's listening and they identify with some of what you've talked about and maybe they're going through their own their own symptoms their own struggles maybe they haven't even told anyone about it yet where where should they look? Where should they turn? What's a resource that would support? What's a first step? Yeah. I will say, even though I'm not actively going to 12-step meetings now or working the steps, for someone who's never even felt the relief that can come with speaking aloud what they're experiencing... 12-step can be really, really supportive for that. And um, being in a room with other people who are going through or have gone through what you're experiencing, you know, a, a favorite 12-step saying is that you're only as sick as your secrets. Mm. So if you're feeling really alone in this, if, if, you're feeling caught in a cycle that you don't even fully understand, but your instincts are telling you that it's destructive and even like a sliver of you wants something different, 12-step is a great place to start. Mm. Honestly, I wish I could say, go to your doctor, get into an eating disorder program, talk to your family. The truth is that our medical system isn't set up to support people who have these problems and that breaks my heart. Like most doctors don't understand these diseases and it's really tough to go to a care professional and not feel understood. It just, in my experience, it makes me less likely to go back when I need the care even more. Mm. Um, 
And then, you know, hospital programs and private programs, they're freaking expensive. Mm -hmm. And the waiting lists are like two years long. Wow. Um, I'm very, very fortunate that I got into the hospital program when I did because my my boyfriend's parents, who later became my in-laws, they had pre-existing relationships at the hospital. So they were able to move me up on the waiting list. Like, who knows what my life would be like if that hadn't happened. Wow. So, yeah, I, I wish to God I could say, go to these 12 different resources. And it's like, mm, yeah, they don't exist. And talking to your family, honestly, I totally understand why people don't. Because when I first told my parents, then... You know, my mom was watching everything that went into my mouth and I would just be eating a normal healthy meal and she would be really scared that I was going to go throw it up because um, people don't understand. And like I said, feeling understood or misunderstood rather, like that's part of the problem in the first place. So um, it's kind of a, a bleak answer, but 12 step is the best advice I can give for someone looking for for some initial support mm. to break the cycle at least is um is 12 step all is that like all the different like alcoholics anonymous and yeah oh. so so with food specifically it's called oa which is overeaters anonymous and there's a few other kind of similarly structured food related programs that i don't recall the names of mm. right now um they do offer phone meetings which we're, we're pretty lucky here in L.A., or I was lucky here in L.A. when I was going to meetings because OA actually started in L.A., so there's, you know, like hundreds of meetings a week. I can remember when I would go visit my grandparents in, in Reno and be looking for a meeting that was like one on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> so those phone meetings are great for people who don't live in places where the in-person meetings. And you don't have to talk. You can just listen. Sometimes just hearing other people share can be enough to give that little glimmer of hope that gets you through a day. Mm. Yeah. And the, and the removing aloneness, removing um, that aloneness. going back to like the very, very beginning of our conversation, like the whole point of this focus on mental health and hope this hopeful human evolution is, Oh, Oh really? You too? I thought, <laughs> I thought it was just me. Thought it was just me. And when you're in a room of people that are all standing up and saying, I, this is what I'm going through and you can, we can see ourselves in each other. Yeah. Um, that's where the, that's where the real, the real yeah. power comes in. Absolutely. Mm. Thanks for being so vulnerable and diving into this stuff. My pleasure. Stick around for part two to hear a social media Q and A with Ann Sage. This episode of Out of Line was produced by me, Caroline. All sound editing, engineering, and original music composition by Jaden Lee. And a big thank you to Cat Footwear for working with Out of Line this season. Hit subscribe to get the next episode on your mobile device when it drops next week. And if you love what you heard, please whip out a review, will ya? 